0: You're listening to the Food and Fitness Podcast, the show about all things related to food and fitness. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at food.fitnesspodcast. We are your hosts, Jackie VanderToon, Jessica White,
1: and Dave Marshall.
0: So I have been so excited about this episode, and I know I say that every time we interview somebody, but I really am so excited. I get goosebumps when I, when I start thinking about this topic. So on today's episode, I really am excited to welcome Dr. Jill Bailey. Jill is a family physician, mom, wife, life coach, and has really recently taken on the role of a psychotherapist. And Jill is here to discuss with us emotional wellness and how emotional wellness is important to the overall health of a person. But before we begin, I'm sure that Jill will reiterate that although she is a physician by training, she's not here to provide medical advice and will only be providing general information. Jill, I normally do introduction of our guests, but you know, doing some research on you, I think you've got a really great story. And I would love for you to introduce yourself. How you altered your career path to extend into psychotherapy. So can you share with us uh, your pathway to becoming a psychotherapist?
2: No, thank you so much um, for having me here. It's really a pleasure to be able to share some of my passion with you. Um, So yeah, I've lived in Orangeville for about 15 years actually. I came here as a resident from the University of Toronto and we just never left. Uh, We made friends here and we had our first child here and um, now it's been 14 years um, that I've been working here as a family physician in Orangeville. And then, of course, you know two years ago, um, the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And a, a sort of unexpected door opened up for me. Um, you may not be aware, but in Ontario at least, um, physicians were not able to get paid for speaking to patients either on the phone, or in a virtual appointment, up until the pandemic, when, of course, you know, you would rarely see a patient in person unless it was necessary, right? Um, People were quite happy to be spoken to on the phone. And so this new sort of avenue opened up of virtual care, and uh, a company called TeleCBT decided to do a fellowship for um, Ontario um, family physicians to learn how to do cognitive behavioral therapy um, in an online platform. So um, they had a pre-existing business has been going for a few years, but only with um, social workers and psychologists, which of course, you know, they're amazingly skilled, that's not what I mean, but they, they can't bill OHIP. And so people required um, you know, private insurance. And so to be able to have physicians um, working with them, we could bill OHIP and be able to see patients who otherwise don't have private coverage. Um, so it's really been an amazing learning opportunity. I still remember I got this email in the summer of 2020 because I had taken some courses with them before. Um, they used to do these courses called 10-Minute CBT. Um, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, and it's just this, this sort a of really interesting little tricks that you could use in a very short session with a patient to um, just talk to them about um, perhaps their medication adherence or um, their health behaviors and kind of help them to decide um, maybe a different way of doing things. Um, but now um, they were offering this fellowship in essentially full-length psychotherapy sessions, and just something inside of me was like, yeah, I want to give it a try, um, which really, in retrospect, is really not much like me at all <laughs> to just say, yeah, sure, why go for it, right? Um, so I found a locum to cover my practice one day a week, which in retrospect was very wise because it would have just been too many hours for me. And um, in October 2020, I started this journey of doing this fellowship. Um, I kind of thought initially it would just sort of be a part-time side interest, maybe even only for the duration of the fellowship. And, you know, I might just do it for, for fun and then stop. But then I just kind of realized that it was actually the next step in my career, that really just this intersection of the mind and um, supporting people through um, coping with difficult life experiences in from that emotional perspective was just a shift for me that really felt right. Um, you know, as a family doctor, I'd always been involved in people's lives from, from birth to death um, and mostly supporting them with the medical part and sometimes just not feeling like there was enough time to be able to talk to them about how they were coping emotionally or even I didn't have the skills to know how to support them with the difficult emotions. And so having these much longer appointments with, with my new patients and really being in, able to delve into you know, what's going on for them, um, helping them develop strategies that actually work and really seeing some amazing um, breakthroughs and developments that people make really on their own, I, I'm i just their guide, Um, really was, was amazing um, and so fulfilling. So I really made the really very difficult decision to leave my family practice. I mean, I had... Um, Definitely before the pandemic, I think many physicians were burned out already, um, myself included. And I had already been sort of starting to redo things a little bit in how I worked and um, just in terms of managing my practice and um, taking care of myself a little bit better. And I'd been starting to feel better from that burnout perspective. And then I realized that, you know, perhaps this next journey in my career um, would really be, you know, more sustaining than continuing in family medicine the way I was doing it. Um, So yeah, actually just about three weeks ago, um, I had a new physician, a lovely um, new doctor take over my practice, and I'm still doing a lot of the other work I used to do, Um, I still work in the hospital, and I work in an after hours clinic here in town, Um, still sort of a little bit of that small town family doctor mentality, um, but now I no longer have the family practice and I have the majority of my time to um, see my psychotherapy patients, still all virtually, Um, I would love to open up an office or do something in person um, in town. But but for now, as long as COVID is here the way it is, um, the virtual space works quite well. Um, I started a group uh, therapy program as well in the fall for people with cancer. My father-in-law passed away a couple of years ago from bladder cancer. Um, his name was Ray, and I named the group Ray of Hope um, in his honor. And it's really just been a phenomenal experience to come alongside these people who really perhaps never really struggled with their mental health before, but of course, coping with either their cancer diagnosis or a loved one having cancer, um, they really are just kind of thrown for a loop and just being able to see um, sort of just how interested they are in these coping strategies and just how how well it works for them. Um, and even just the community that we developed in in the eight-week program. So I'm running it again for the second time right now. I also did some training to be a mindfulness facilitator. So I'm facilitating the um, very old program, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. It's been around since the 70s. Um, And that's a program meant for people with any type of stress, which is really all of us you know, seriously. Right. Um, as well as people with chronic pain. Um, so I'm running both those groups virtually in addition to seeing people individually. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's like, it's a life giving experience for me where I definitely felt like there were times when family practice was life giving. Um, but there was a lot of drain as well. So I feel like this is, um, yeah, just a really amazing next step in my career. Um, the other thing I was going to say is I did do also training, um, to become a certified life coach. And in that, role. I mostly um, support female physicians who are recovering from burnout. And I do a a little bit of of work with um, professional women as well, in general. Yeah. So that's a bit about me. You
0: are a huge (laughs) asset. I am so excited for
2: you. Wow. That's, that is,
0: that is phenomenal. Amazing.
2: Thanks. I should also say I have four kids. That's also like, a little thing that I do, like, occasionally. Sure.
0: <laughs> that's, that's your thing
2: on the side. My, no, oh, I four, the my, husband. my husband, Mike, and I have four boys. Mike stays home with them, which is amazing, especially these days. I mean, I think that um, families that have two parents trying to work and all that homeschooling we've done, uh, man, that would have just been crazy. So he's been a real blessing. Um, and our boys are amazing. Um, so they, they've bonded so much these last couple of years with the pandemic. It's really beautiful to see. And they're, they're wide age range. My oldest is almost 15 and my youngest is five. Um, and they really just, they're all, I mean, they fight, right. But, but they're little buddies too. <laughs> well, that's that good.
1: Awesome. So um, as we're going to dive into this, we're going to talk about emotional wellness. And I think one of the best things to do is start this off is um, start with a definition. So how would you define emotional wellness? And second part of the question is, how can someone gauge their emotional wellness and where they are?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I think in my mind, this idea of emotional wellness is the ability to flexibly respond to our emotions without. Sort of on one extreme, just getting swept away and overwhelmed by them, but also without trying to resist against them or pretend like we're not having them. Um, That emotional well being, for sure, is not being happy all the time, Um, but really this idea of embracing our emotions just as part of the richness of being human. You know, that um, it's just part of the human experience to feel happy and to feel angry and to feel shame and to feel sadness, right? Um, We know that these are all just part of the experience of being alive. And so I think to be emotionally well is to perhaps be able to embrace that in some way and to be curious with ourselves and to be open to the experience of being human um, and to be able to feel better in the sense of it being a skill, like I'm better at feeling as opposed to having some better feeling all the time. Um, I think, especially when we strive to be happy, whatever that really means, sometimes that's actually when we suffer more, because inevitably, pain comes up, you know, the last couple years are just an example, right, of um, how you'd have to be faking it to be happy all the time these last couple years, right. Um, And I think the more we resist against reality and pretend we're not feeling what we're feeling, we can really suffer.
3: So diving off of that a little bit, because that leads, all of what you said leads into my next question. Um, Can you share with us the importance of acknowledging emotions as an integral part of the human experience? So what should we do with negative emotions, such as suffering and struggling? um, And what should we do with the positive emotions as well, such as happiness and joy? And is having negative emotions bad? Um, And should we always strive to be happy? Which you kind of touched on
2: a couple yeah. seconds ago. Um, so the first part there, I... Really like talking about emotions more as like pleasant and unpleasant as opposed to positive and negative. So I think already there's a little bit of that belief that we have, and this is this is a human thing, right? A lot of us have this belief: some emotions are good and some emotions are bad, or some are positive and some are negative. Meaning that there's something kind of wrong with some emotions and there's something better about others. That's kind of a judgment, right? And I think it's maybe more reasonable to say, yeah, of course we have emotions that we experience that are pleasant and others that feel unpleasant, um, but all emotions are valuable. Um, they can really teach us a lot of things. And um, the way I like to look at it, and this is not my language, this is from Dr. Russ Harris, who is an acceptance and commitment therapy trainer. Um, And what he says is that really emotions have three functions. They motivate and they communicate and emotions illuminate. And and so what that means, um, the first part there, motivate, emotions drive us to act. So every time we feel a feeling, part of the purpose that it serves is that it makes us want to do something, right? And so I actually, I was just thinking about a story to illustrate this. I had a patient a few years ago who came to me, said he had terrible anxiety. He said he was so anxious because he smokes and he's worried he's going to get lung cancer. And I just thought about like, what a disservice would I've done to that patient if I sent him home with anti-anxiety medication, right? And we ended up having a discussion about, you know what? It sounds like you really are concerned about smoking. And perhaps, you know, we can work on some strategies to quit smoking, right? His anxiety about getting lung cancer was meant to be there. It was serving a purpose to motivate him to quit smoking, right? And for me to just say, oh, here's a medicine, like you just shouldn't feel anxious, would just have been completely in the wrong direction, right? Um, And although it's important to recognize this really motivational quality of emotions, it's also helpful for us to realize that emotions don't actually make us do anything, right? Sometimes we say, I was just so upset. I just, had to yell. It's like, yeah, for sure. The the emotion of anger motivated you to yell. And we can understand that that is part of the experience, but yet we don't have to obey our emotions. And so just having that tension between seeing what is my urge, what do I want to do from this emotion? And then at the same time, we don't always have to obey it. Dr. Susan David says, emotions are data, not directives. Um, And this idea that, yeah, it's information But we don't have to always do everything our emotions tell us if it doesn't serve you know the greater purpose of of what we want to accomplish in our lives um but yeah definitely that motivational quality of emotions is really beneficial and the second part there is communicate and really what that this means is that emotions can help us communicate with other people and this can be even in a very um you know maybe we could call it primitive way of like a baby crying right and this is this baby is expressing its emotion of whatever i'm dirty i'm hungry i'm tired And um, that parent is gonna hear that crying and they're gonna respond to the baby's needs, right? If that baby was unable to feel whatever emotion made them cry, they wouldn't be able to get help from their parent. And this is the same for others of us, right? If I come home and I've had a hard day, you know, my husband might see the look on my face and maybe he'll give me a hug, right? So we know that this communication um, piece is really helpful. The other thing I think is that our emotions communicate with us, right? So if I have um, a bad feeling about something, perhaps I'm in a relationship that I'm just having some discomfort with that might lead me to you know, change something about the relationship, maybe to leave that difficult relationship because of that feeling that I have about it. So really paying attention to what our emotions are telling us can really be valuable and they can help us communicate with other people. The last part that, um, if I'm allowed to have a favorite benefit of emotions would be my favorite, is this idea that emotions illuminate our values. And in um, psychotherapy, we talk about values is that our, our values are really like our heart's desire for the kind of person we wanna be and the way we wanna show up in the world. And when we have a painful emotion, quite often, it's pointing us towards something that's very important to us, um, right? So the example that I, I was just thinking of is that I don't know about any other parents, but sometimes I yell at my kids and I often feel guilty about it. And, it, and that guilt shows me that it's very important to me that I treat my kids with kindness and with patience Otherwise I'd be like, well, my kids are idiots. <laughs> they deserved it, right? <laughs> Which maybe once in a while is slightly true. <laughs> um, but but this, this guilt is sort of showing me what, it, what I really value and what's important to me. Another way of saying that is on the other side of our values is pain, right? And we know that you know when we love big, we grieve big, right? And so those things that pain and, um, and what we value is so tightly connected. Um, and so as we get to recognize that there are so many benefits to having emotions, then we can start to maybe disentangle ourselves from this idea that some emotions are bad and some emotions are good, right? Or some are positive and some are negative. We can say, oh, like our emotions are our teachers, um, I think is a much more useful way to think about it.
0: I, I love it, Jill. Um, you've tapped into so many things. And yep, uh, the, the parental guilt is strong, I'm, I'm sure, mm-hmm. amongst many of our listeners and us as well. Um, Jill, one of the things that uh, I spent a lot of time with athletes, and I was a military kid growing up, and you know, certainly when I was preparing this, one of the things that came into my mind was the, the movie, A League of Our Owns, where you know, one of the athletes is um, you know, the, the coach, Tom Hanks said, you know, why did you do this? And um, she started to cry. And Tom Hanks' character looked at the player and asked her if she was crying, and he proceeded to yell at her the famous line, there is no crying in baseball. (laughs) And, you know, certainly growing up, and and I was reflecting on this because I was reading about the Myers-Briggs, and um, I hate it being an F, a feeler, because to me that's kind of embarrassing, like, oh, those touchy-feely emotional things, I wish that they would go away. And I don't think I'm the mm-hmm. only one. And you talked about this earlier with, you know, and and uh, justed good bad emotions. And I think we have this binary approach: is happiness is mm-hmm. good, sadness is bad. Um, mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on why we feel the need to ignore our emotions and feel mm-hmm. ashamed when we have those emotions?
2: Yeah, I think there's probably like generations of misconceptions about emotions, and we sort of get taught this as children. I mean, in um, in the cognitive behavioral therapy way of thinking about things, we know that like our, our beliefs about the world are probably created in our childhood, right? And so when we when our parents, and they learned it from their parents, so learned it from their parents kind of thing, uh, teach us, and it's never like overt, right? Like, we never had a lesson, at least I didn't in school. You know, this is what we think about emotions, right? And these are the emotions you're allowed to feel. These are the ones that are acceptable to show, right? This was never taught to us explicitly, right? It was always um, more subtle. Um, but I think you're right. There's certain emotions that are okay to show. And certain emotions that are not. And I think it's also perhaps very gendered, right? Again, to just be very stereotypical that, you know, women are maybe more allowed to show some of those, you know, like you said, Jackie, touchy feely kind of emotions, but, you know, maybe men like that shows that's maybe a sign of weakness or, you know, um, there's something wrong with him if he shows um, uh, more like sadness or um, uh, affection or something like that. Whereas if women get angry, well, then, you know, she, there's something wrong with her, right? Or maybe, you know, we tell her that there's something wrong with your menstrual cycle or something, right? Like, it gets to be about that. Whereas um, men, and maybe it's more acceptable to show anger, right? And so I think that's, of course, a very gendered way of talking about it. But I think this is kind of how we're taught. So as little girls or little boys, um, you know we kind of grow up believing that this is kind of what's acceptable in society and um i just think it's so interesting even like that example that you give um like just what useless advice that is to say there's no crying in baseball like like that's going to make her feel better or somehow change things right <laughs> um and so it's just interesting right cuz we say like how, how have you ever had a you know painful emotion and said i'm just going to stop feeling this right now and ha- does that ever actually work right we can't just stop feeling something. Right. Um, you know, sometimes I talk to my patients about how, like, I'm not a surgeon. Right. And if, if, if we could just cut out our painful thoughts and feelings, like we can cut out a painful gallbladder. Yeah, let's do it. Right. But we just don't have that ability, right. Emotions just don't work that way. And so just telling someone literally to like cut it out uh, is just kind of, unfortunately, you know, a dead end because we can't just cut out our emotions.
0: I think that's really important that you know you you bring that up because upon reflection you know um, how many times are we told or we tell ourselves you know oh stop feeling that way um, denying ourselves what you know my heart or my brain or whatever is feeling at the time and doing whatever to try and prevent that um, yeah you know and, and again I'm I'm glad that you you're bringing this information up so that you know certainly when I feel like crying, there's a reason why I feel like crying type thing mm-hmm. and, and not to deny that feeling. So thank you for sharing that.
2: Yeah.
1: You know that uh, what you mentioned before of like gender biased um, emotions, when there was a, a video that came out about uh, tennis players and the man was passionate, but the female uh, player, she was um, short tempered and it was the yeah. exact same reaction to the exact same situation. And, you know, it that's frustrating because I think both athletes are just as passionate or just as frustrated
0: mm-hmm. but for
1: some reason an announcer or a newscaster gets to determine what their reaction was uh, which mm-hmm. is you know it's never fair but if you are passionate about something or you are you you're frustrated or angry about something um what can happen to an individual when they contain or fight the emotion um, that's coming out to them or the emotions that they're feeling
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. So the best analogy I like to use for this one is it's like you have a beach ball and you're trying to push it under the water, right? So if our emotions are this huge floaty beach ball, you know, how much effort do we have to exert to push it under the water? And it's not really gone, right? But we're just pushing it really hard to keep it under the water. And then of course, as soon as we let go, it just pops up even higher in our face, right? And so we know that when we like suppress or resist or like bottle up our emotions, again, we're not really getting rid of them, we're probably just delaying them. And they may pop out even more in other ways. Um, whether that's, you know, and I definitely have this experience, you know, you have a day at work, and you're kind of feeling frustrated about, you know, a few little things, and then you get home, and like your kid spills their juice, and you're like, letting all of your anger from the whole day out at that one kid right and you're thinking it's not really that big of a deal but i can see my anger is not just about this i've been bottling up so many other instances and and i just inadvertently you know let it out maybe in the safer space in my home right and so i think that's kind of what happens um, when we try to push our emotions under first of all it uses up so much energy too right just think of how how many other things we could be focusing our energy on if we just allowed ourselves to feel our emotions allow them to pass like the experiences they are in our bodies and then, you know, just do what's meaningful to us as opposed to so much energy, you know, telling ourselves that what's real just shouldn't be.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can speak from personal experience where, you know, you get frustrated and I would call it compound emotions or it just continues to go. And then when you finally do let the emotions out, usually the person that is on the receiving end is not the reason of that frustration right especially when you mentioned about like the spilled milk or juice you know that they're sitting there going uh, it was just spilled milk like I don't understand why it got this bad right and I've done it and then you, you let it in and you're just like I'm so sorry if this was not personal like it was not you I was just holding this in from earlier right
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we're not aware of that, right? Like a lot of it is just really being mindful. And what I mean by mindfulness is just like really paying attention and being present with ourselves. Then we can say, okay, like maybe that, you know, patient that I saw in the morning and I started to feel a bit frustrated, I can just let myself feel frustrated and just be mindful of it. And I find that's really a great way of relating to our emotions is just actually describing them. So, you know, we call emotions feelings as well, right? And it's because we feel them in our bodies and even just getting curious with okay, I feel like we're talking the example of feeling frustrated. What does frustration feel like? How do I know I'm frustrated? Right. And for me, I find I feel a lot of emotions in my chest. So the frustration I think feels like kind of like a bit tight. Maybe I, I feel like my shoulders kind of get tight. Maybe you feel like you're a bit flushed in your face. And sometimes just noticing all of those different body sensations and being curious with the emotion. And then I think turning towards yourself with a bit of kindness, like either there's a a little tool I like to use with my patients called quick, kind self-talk, and you start off by acknowledging whatever you're experiencing. And I like to use a bit of a different phrasing than the way we talk about emotions usually. Like usually we would say, I'm frustrated, right? That's like saying I'm Jill, right? Like frustrated is like part of who I am, which really is not the case, right? Like the emotion is an experience that I'm having right now. I'm feeling frustrated, but it's not part of my identity. So a a more useful way of describing it might be to say, oh, here is frustration, or this is a moment of frustration. And then to turn to ourselves and say something warm and supportive, like, and it's okay to feel frustrated, right? Or, you know, things will get better, or I can be here with myself, and I can feel frustrated for as long as I need to. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, go out there and yell at somebody, right, and react to my frustration. But I can notice that it's coming up, maybe acknowledge, you know, what's going on, what I need to do to maybe change the situation a little bit. Um, And then the really amazing thing as well is that um, most emotions, when we just pay attention to them, the research shows they actually only last for about 90 seconds. Uh, It's when we resist them, or we like, continue to engage with them like oh like what else i'm frustrated about this and like what about this other person and you know we kind of kind of go into it but if we just like sit there and experience it and let it wash over you or surf it like a wave it's from the, it's our limbic system in our brain it only lasts for 90 seconds um which sounds kind of wild right like you think how it, when the last time i felt frustrated for only 90 seconds um, but it's because we sometimes inadvertently really hold on to it so
1: so that's fascinating
2: I find that super
3: fascinating. And that's one thing that I suggest to any of my clients, if they get a bad email, just sit on it. Don't respond right away. Like just, you know, let it be for a little bit and then go back to it. Um, And when we talk about being in control of our emotions, I'm going to P.S. I'm going to switch this question up a little bit because we've kind of talked about what Mm. I was planning on asking. Um, But being in control of your emotions is something that a lot of people admire, um, and especially when it when it comes to emotions in general. We talked about bottling up our emotions, so that's obviously not really being in control of your emotions. Um,
2: so what is being in control of your emotions? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's possible. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Um, Dr. Stephen Hayes, who is another acceptance and commitment therapy expert, he's actually one of the creators of it. Um, I heard him on a podcast recently. He's he's sort of he was being interviewed and he said, you know, if I gave you two options, you could either control your emotions or control your life, which would you pick? And he said, pretty easy choice. I mean, I guess maybe some of us would pick our emotions, but we would probably rather be in control of our life. Right. And, and when it comes right down to it, that's all we can really control is how we behave and what we do. Right. So the the words we say and the ways we move our bodies, we really can't control our emotions. And the more we try, now this may be semantics, but when I think of control, I think of like, holding in, resisting, like you said, Jess, like bottling. Um, and then we, we just finished talking about how that just doesn't work. So again, I would say I get back to this idea of being able to flexibly respond to emotions would more be the, um, the paradigm or um, that would be the most useful. Um, because then when we can just allow our emotions to be and then still do what matters to us, I think that's when we have more control maybe of ourselves um, as opposed to letting the emotions control us. hmm I love
0: it. Um, we are the Food and Fitness Podcast. And one of the things that I've noticed about myself and many other people is managing emotions. Um, f- like for me, and we talked about this uh, in our last pod in, in an earlier podcast about for me and my wellness wheel, my emotions have always been the most, the, the biggest struggle I've had. Um, because to go back to your example, I would rather control my emotions because I don't like to show my emotions. So that's why I'm super excited because I'm, I'm hanging onto your words um, and, and taking them home. Um, so I like to control and manage my emotions. So let me give you an example. So what I, I do if I, if I'm feeling stressed or if I'm work or if, you know, the kids are driving me nuts or my immediate reaction is to suppress that anger, frustration, whatever is with, um, something. And and my immediate go-to is that food. Now that you said it's only 90 seconds, that actually makes me feel better. So I'm going to wait 90 seconds. Um, but I transfer that anger and stress to, it's funny how I go from that anger and stress. And then I eat the donut and then I'm like, Oh now I feel self-loathing because I gave into that emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you, how do you suggest instead of reaching for the donut and then transferring that anger and stress into something else um, how do you stress we we and i don't want to use the word manage our emotions how do you I, i'm struggling for a word here how do yeah, you manage it you okay. okay all right let's do with that yeah yeah how do you manage that anger frustration sadness x whatever yeah
2: well i mean first i think it's such a human experience to try to to do something to get rid of an emotion like eat something people, other people drink alcohol, you know, uh, all these different things we do. And in my life coach training, um, my mentor there called this buffering. And I don't know, you know I'm like, my chemistry is a little bit rusty, but it's this idea that, you know, there's an the acidic and basic solutions, right? Which are kind of two opposite. Um, and then you can add a buffer to bring them back to neutral. So when we buffer our emotions, we add something else like a donut to try to bring our emotions back to neutral, right? And, and you're right, in the moment it works really well, which is why we do it, right? Like, we're not stupid. It's like, you need the donut, kind of feels good. But then I think you're onto something too, Jackie, that it, it doesn't actually erase that emotion. It maybe just postpones it, right? Um, or it comes out maybe in a different way. Um, and then it maybe doesn't actually serve our purposes, right? And so I think looking at these types of behaviors and saying, does doing this actually make my life better? Um, like for example, I think you know I know we were maybe going to talk about this a little bit later. The idea of our um, you know exercise could exercise be a way of buffering emotions? Well, yeah, maybe. And maybe if you exercise excessively to the point of injury, that maybe isn't healthy for you. But if you exercise reasonable amount and it's enjoyable and it helps you to manage your emotions, even if it's technically you know a buffering kind of behavior then it it doesn't take away anything from your life. Whereas perhaps if you're drinking excessively or eating in a way that doesn't nourish your body um, more often, then maybe those are things we want to look at, right? So first of all, just saying, yeah, it's normal to have a donut sometimes and it's okay if it works. Um, But I think the the best advice I would have for those moments is um, to, to see if you can bring some awareness to that moment, right? So I'm just picturing like, here I am, There's this donut here. I've had a stressful day. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just want that. Right. And sometimes to recognize that, like almost like that pull in your body. And again, that's that mindfulness of our emotions part. Right. Is like just noticing what is a physical sensation of this emotion. And then there's a lot of power in just naming it. Um, We have a little phrase in um, psychotherapy that goes name it to tame it. And there's actually been some interesting research with using functional MRIs that shows that just naming the emotion you feel. So saying like, I feel stressed, or even like, I feel an urge to eat this, right? Like whatever that might be, just naming it can diminish the intensity of it. Because basically what we're doing is we're just kind of holding it with a little bit of space and noticing, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. I have this urge to eat a donut. Okay. Right. And I'm recognizing this is happening. And then you have a bit more of a choice right whereas sometimes it's just like it's already done and you're like oh wait a second like what did i even do right and that's when we're kind of on our autopilot settings of just responding or reacting to our emotions but when we pause and say okay i notice i'm feeling this i notice i have this urge then you can decide you know what do i really want to do maybe it's like the best type of donut ever made by some little bakery i've never you know i never get them very often i'm just going to really enjoy it or maybe you know what it doesn't even taste that good anyway and, you know, I'm going to feel kind of icky afterwards and I don't really want to eat it. So I'm just going to pass. Right. But then also recognizing that I had the urge to do something. And, and what else do I really need? Um, and that is sort of like the quintessential self-compassion question is, you know, what do I really need right now? Um, and is it really a donut? Maybe sometimes yes, but maybe sometimes I need to like call a friend and vent, or I need to drink some water, or I need to go to bed because I need more sleep, or I need to give myself a break um, and go outdoors. Um, so I think this idea of, of recognizing that we have an urge to have something and knowing that it's normal, we're only human, and it really does work. Um, but that at the same time, we can sort of step back from that experience and decide on purpose what we really want to do.
0: I think that's really important for me is to be okay and feeling whatever. Cause you know, going back to, we talked about guilt, um, you know, and, and have that gender kind of anger is not acceptable for women. Um, and be okay with like, I'm feeling angry, but it's only going to last 90 seconds.
2: Yeah, I love
0: that. And it's okay. Like it's okay to feel angry or whatever just happened. It's okay yeah. to feel sad. It's okay. I love saying that. that. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's an important kind of take home messages. Um, and and so my issue obviously is food, but you know, others are reaching for the bottle or the cigarette or the whatever, like naming it. Um, it's okay to feel this way.
2: I love that. Thank you. Yeah. The one thing I would say as a little caveat is that, um, if we think about that emotions lasting 90 seconds, just be cautious. And I've done this myself. When I learned that I was like, okay, so I can set a timer. I'll just wait and the emotion will disappear. Perfect. <laughs> and then it's like, no, then you're still kind of resisting it, right? <laughs> when you're like, okay, I'm just going to wait for 90 seconds. So it's this, it's this real like paradox of as soon as we open up and we're, we're really okay with having the emotional experience, then we're no longer gripping it so hard and it doesn't have the same grip on us. And then it can just pass when it's ready. But as soon as we do, even like, so just in, just a little bit of resistance, which I think for me, at least it was like, oh, just let it be 90 seconds and it better be gone by then. <laughs> right. Um, and our bodies, I think, you know, we can't fool them. Right. Um, so really this idea of like, just really, I'm okay with feeling this. I can understand that it's part of being human. It's, it's only an uncomfortable emotion. It can't actually hurt me. and And then perhaps it will pass, you know, a little bit faster than if we try to do something else. Thank you. Yeah.
1: So a lot of the listeners on our podcast, uh, they'll probably know that I'm uh, I'm an, I'm a hiker. That's uh, kind of recently happened, but it's something that I really enjoyed. Um, that I think has done a great number for my mental health and uh, my wellness yeah. is just being in nature. And I don't know why, but everyone kind of seems to have this centering um, feeling when they go into nature, or like the mindfulness, um, the quietness, the sounds that are there mm-hmm. that you can't really pinpoint it's something something there that we don't really know but when we're talking uh we, we talked it before we, when you mentioned buffering but do you think or do you know if physical activity and preparation can actually prepare you for emotions or mm. i wouldn't say prevent but have you handled them better in the future rather than reacting to them
2: yeah. And like I said, even though we, if we want to get really technical, we can maybe say that exercise is a buffer. I think in, unless you're doing it in a way that's you know, really unhealthy um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a beautiful thing to do. Um, and, you know, we actually just met with my cancer coping skills group today and we talked about the idea that, that like exercising outdoors and with a person that you care about is like, like the, tri- the trifecta of health benefits, right? That you're with someone that you love or a good friend, being able to have that sense of um, companionship, and being outdoors and moving your body, like there's so many benefits to that. Um, And I think you're right, just even like, I think being in our bodies as we exercise, right, that we can really just, um, those those feelings that we experience as emotions somehow become a little bit easier when like our heart's beating and we're sweating because we're exercising, right? I think we can Mm -hmm. tell ourselves that now these body sensations are acceptable, right? Whereas if I feel anxious, well, that increased heart rate, that sweaty feeling, oh, that's uncomfortable. But if I'm out for a run, my heart rate's probably faster and I'm even sweatier, but somehow I, I, I enjoy it, right? And I, I think you're right. There's something really magical about being outdoors that I, I agree with you. We just really, we can't really put our, our finger on, um, but I think it's, it's definitely a beautiful way to, um, to process emotions.
0: Can I, can I just share a little story? And certainly this is the pandemic has, has impacted us all in, in many different ways. And, and Jill, you mentioned it as well. Mm. I find my, I get chest tightness now. And I've never really experienced that before. So you get this kind of like, hmm, what's going on here? But what I've learned is, you know, what I sit in my office all day and I find that it makes me like anxious or whatever. And I feel this tightness, but the cure for me is to go outside and go for a run. I know it every time. And it's almost like the tightness is gone. Can you elaborate on why, you know, that emotion is making me feel a certain way? And exercise, in my case, helps alleviate that feeling. So it's kind of that spiral. Emotion causes physical symptoms and physical symptoms help manage the emotion as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's interesting, Jack. It's an interesting way of putting it. You know, I'm definitely not an expert in the exact physiology. It's a great question. Like, why do certain emotions cause certain body sensations? I don't know the answer to that. I think there's a lot of you know, research on, you know, the common body sensations with different emotions. And um, it's probably some commonalities among people that we feel emotions in a certain way. Um, sometimes, I mean, it could also just even be some like muscle tension from sitting still for a long time. Right. And then of course we move our bodies, you know, our, our muscles get, get looser. Um, and it, and it may even just be that, you know, you're listening to your body, right. your body's telling you something and then you do what it asked. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's um, it works really well that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me,
2: it seems to, it's like, it's like my cure
3: when I feel I'm like, need to mm-hmm. go for a run. Yeah. Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: All right. So I have one for you. And this one word has make, it makes a lot of impact on my life. It has almost everyone. Uh, And that word is stress. So stress, I'm sure there's, there's no, I don't, I don't know anyone who isn't affected by stress over this these past couple of years. Um, My, myself, I am a business owner. So you know, wear many hats, there's always a lot going on. And there are many times throughout the day when I feel stressed. So stress for me, um, I've had to sit back, reflect on what my triggers are, you know, what makes Mm -hmm. me feel this way? Um, Because stress can change a lot um, with your body. So what are some of the long-term issues associated with prolonged stress? Um, And do you have any suggestions on how to manage stress?
2: Yeah, so I guess Mila answered that first question about like the long-term issues associated with prolonged stress. There's actually really mixed evidence about that. So there's, I think there's some research that shows that there could be for sure some physical health effects of stress. Um, But then there's also, I think some confounding variables there, you know, for example, someone who's stressed, for example, maybe they eat more fast food or maybe they don't exercise, um, or maybe, I don't know, they smoke or something because they have so much stress to manage their stress, right? They drink more alcohol. And so could those be the the factors that really contribute to their physical health or was it the stress? Um, There's a really interesting Ted talk called How How to Make Stress Your Friend. Um, It's by Dr. Kelly McGonigal. She has some amazing books. One of her books is The Upside of Stress, which is, I think, basically the long version of her TED Talk. She has another one called The Joy of Movement. It's actually all about exercise. That's great. Um, But in her um, TED Talk, she says that in her research, so she's a psychology researcher in the U.S., she discovered that it's actually believing stress is bad for you. It's bad for you. They did research on people who have the same amount of stress. Like, you know, they have these rating scales for how much stress in your life, you know, stressful events have happened in the last few years. And then they asked people what they believed about the stress. And it was the people who believed that that stress was bad for them that had more negative health impacts than the people who perhaps thought they were just growing or, you know, maybe what we were talking about before, you know, experiencing the richness of being alive. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So it's in- an interesting idea, right? That it's maybe thinking, oh, my gosh, this stress is so bad for me that may in fact be what makes it bad for me. But I think there's, it's probably more complicated just like everything in life is a bit more complicated that there's so many other variables that contribute to, you know, what exactly do we do with our lifestyle when we're stressed? Um, And does that really contribute to our physical health? Um, And I think the second part was sort of how to manage the the long-term stress, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about this beforehand and I would say, especially when it comes to um, like small business, which in, you know, as, as physicians, we are sort of, sort of um, small business owners as well. So a lot of these things are the tips that I would give to my physician clients as a life coach um, would be, first of all, um, like time management. And um, the strategy that we use in life coaching is that when you take a look at your week. Um, You schedule in all of your self-care first with a blank slate. Right. So don't forget, like how many hours do you want to sleep? Like you schedule that into Um, your social time, your exercise, you know, time to make meals, whatever it is that's going to keep you well, that goes in the calendar first. And then you can go back in and add the other things you need to do other appointments um you know whatever other tasks you want to get done throughout the week um but you make sure the self care is a priority and it's in there first and there's this uh, this idea of always paying it forward to future you right so the idea that i'm putting together the schedule this week for myself and then you know me next tuesday who wakes up to do the schedule will really appreciate what a like really balanced Um, week I put together for her. And the more we pay it forward to our future self to give her an even better day, you know, the better our life just keeps getting. So I find just that really basic, seemingly basic tip of just like time management, I think goes a long way. The Mm. other thing I think that's really helpful for managing stress is to delegate as much as possible. And sometimes that's hard, right? Because especially, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So we're like, oh, well, like I could let you do this, but you know, I'll do a better job. So I'll just do it. Um, But, but just letting other people do things and working within, um, this is what one of my life coaching colleagues calls your zone of genius. So if you have a certain area in the business that is just like your thing, you just love doing um, that you're passionate about. Do more of that and just let someone else do the other stuff, right? Whether you pay someone to do it or delegate it away, um, whatever that looks like, you know, we can kind of get creative with that um, to really focus on what matters. Because of course, we all have the same 24 hours in the day, right? So when we take a look at our time management, if we just have so many tasks that just would take, you know, a 36-hour day, then like something has to go, right? And I would just suggest that let's not let the exercise or the self-care time go, but maybe we can delegate some of those tasks, just if it makes sense. Um, And then I think as well, sometimes the expectations we have of ourselves, again, as a self-proclaimed recovering perfectionist over here, that I think sometimes we can tell ourselves, I need to do more, what I do is never good enough, I made a mistake, that means I failed. And I think a lot of those thoughts can really contribute to the the stress that we experience, um, but being able to say, you know, Hey, maybe this didn't go well. What can I learn from it? Right. Of course this just happens in business. Right. And um, can sometimes help us to feel a bit less stressed as well. You
3: just hit every single issue that I well, not, not issue, but um, just items that I have made as goals. Cause now that I have mm-hmm. realized those things, you know, it's, mm. it's one of those things that you just have to reflect
2: and make a priority. Yeah, and be a good boss to yourself too, right? We think that in in medicine, again, sort of with a small business being your own boss, you know, be a good boss. Like let let your employee, which is you, (laughs) You know, yeah. take a lunch break or take a vacation or, you know, leave early on a Friday, you know, um, and then really getting focused and doing work. I mean, I think our our cell phones are such distractions, too. Right. And so sometimes we really want to be focused and get our work done, you know, putting away the phone and just, you know, getting to work and then, you know, enjoying your, your leisure time um, can really be a good balance, too.
3: Yeah, definitely. Mm. No, uh, we- should-
1: Go ahead, Dave. So we talked um, we've, we've talked a lot about reacting to emotions. Is there a way to prepare for emotions
2: hmm. down the
1: road? Like, is, do you know what I mean?
2: Yeah. You know, I would say actually probably having mindfulness practice would be the first thing that comes to mind. Um, you know, in my my training doing the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, we um, it's an eight-week program and we have people do 45 minutes of mindfulness practice six days a week. Just in my mind, it's kind of a big ask, right? Um, especially if you have like, you know, a few other tasks on your to-do list mm-hmm. um, and really just sitting and being in the present moment. And um, sometimes it's just like an itch on your face and just being with it and not scratching it, or sometimes it's other sensations in your body or in your surroundings, I think that really helps us to practice being present with whatever comes up for us. And then when, you know, your kid spills something or somebody frustrates you, you know, you can more easily tune in to that present moment awareness without reacting. Um, So I think, yeah, I think mindfulness is a great way to prepare for difficult emotions. Great. Jill, do you when you talk about mindfulness, is that simply
0: being aware and recognizing where that sensation comes from? And I'll go back to my t- mm-hmm. chest tightness. Like, where is that chest tightness coming from? When do I experience it? Is that, is that what you mean about, you know, being more aware? Like, can you define mindfulness a little bit more for our listeners? Yeah,
2: yeah, sure. So um, the definition of mindfulness that I've always been taught is from Jon Kabat-Zinn. And it's um, just simply that mindfulness is, is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment, right? So this idea of paying attention is like, where is my focus? Like um, we talk about attention like a flashlight. So where is the flashlight of my attention pointing and knowing that it's pointing there? So paying attention to our attention, right? Um, And this is that intentional part, right? So in a mindfulness practice, we sort of guide people through, um, for example, there's a body scan is one that we do a lot in MBSR and we guide people through focusing on the sensations in different areas of their body. And that helps us to um, shift attention. So we pay attention to, for example, the left hand and then we shift our attention up into the left arm. And that is um, of course in and of itself, doesn't help with stress, but as a transferable skill we can notice, oh, I notice I'm feeling chest tightness. And what else do I also notice? Oh, I also notice this thought. If I go for a run, this would really be helpful, right? Um, or I notice this thought: I hate feeling this way. I'm going to feel this way forever. And then we think, oh, okay, I, now I'm noticing some thinking. So just you know, mindfulness, I think, allows us to parse out our experience, so it's not as overwhelming. So I notice some thinking. I notice some body sensations. I notice an impulse to do something, to grab the donut or whatever, right? And then when we notice that. Then we're no longer being controlled by it because we're watching the experience sort of from the outside, um, which to me is the real benefit of this idea of mindfulness. Um, so I think a lot of times we talk about mindfulness as being like a relaxation strategy, um, but but even though sometimes relaxation can be a byproduct of being mindful, um, it really is not the intention. The intention is to pay attention to either you know, like I said, a body scan or my emotions or my um, thoughts, whatever it is that your intended focus is. And it really is a, a muscle, although I don't think there's actually a mindfulness muscle, but we, we use um, the metaphor of um, you know, exercising our, our m- mindfulness muscle because we're, we're in a, a world where our attention is pulled in so many different directions, right? Your phone beeps, your email beeps, someone asks you a question, you know, you're thinking about your to-do list, right? And just noticing that your attention is getting pulled, that's mindfulness, right? So a lot of my patients say like, oh, like we're doing this body scan. I keep on thinking about things like I'm doing it wrong. I say, no, 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 no as soon as you recognize that your attention is pulled into something else, you're still practicing mindfulness, right? Because again, you're noticing your flashlight has moved and then you just gently redirect it back, right? So I think this is a great skill as we manage stress in our lives because we can see, okay, I can see all these thoughts are coming up for me. And then noticing that it's thoughts, not necessarily facts, can really help us to just, um, again, step out of that experience.
0: Just, uh, Jill, what uh importance would you say self-talk has? And, and one of the things yeah. that, you know, that I've kind of grown is, you know, that's the beauty of getting older is when you're younger, I, I spent a lot of time, you know, I always, I talk on this podcast, how I had an imposter syndrome, right? Like, oh, I'm only where I am because people were nice to me and I'm not really all that great. And I'm not smart enough. And, you know, I've learned to accept who I am, but I've had to change how I think about things. How, does
2: self-talk help with
0: managing
2: emotions? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is even sometimes those um, beliefs we might have about emotions, the way we talk to ourselves about the emotions, right? Like again, that socialization, like, oh, like only lazy people feel this, or only weak people feel this, or you know, I'm not, I'm not a very nice person if I feel angry with my kids. That makes me a bad mum for feeling angry, right? So noticing those thoughts. Um, which I would say those come from like our inner critical voice, which is probably also internalized you know, not only from our, our own experiences, but it's, I think for, through generations, we sort of in some ways need an inner critic to be like, hey, watch out for something to keep us safe. But our inner critic um, is kind of overdeveloped, I think, um, and maybe a little bit too nasty more than is necessary. Um, and really, I mean, I could talk forever about this concept of, of self-compassion, which is essentially just not being a jerk to yourself and treating yourself the way you would treat a friend that you care about. Right. And so the ways that we notice our inner critic speaks to us and we believe that it's just true, you know, that that causes so much suffering. But to to be able to step out of that and say, okay, I hear my inner critic saying you're a terrible mom and say, yeah, you know what? I do kind of feel angry and I'd rather not feel angry. But sometimes human beings feel angry when, you know, their kids make a mess and that's okay. Right. Um, not that we're not excusing our behavior or just telling ourselves that everything's OK, but we're just meeting ourselves where we're at and saying, like, what would I say to a friend who was going through this? I always love that question because people have such wisdom and such lovely things to say to a friend and then to say, well, you know, could you offer that to yourself? It's like, oh, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but I, again, I don't know what it is that we're sort of taught that, no, like you have to be mean to yourself. Um, but the literature on self-compassion is actually really interesting. It shows that self-compassion is so much more motivating than criticism. And again, using like the sports analogy, if you have a basketball coach who just yells at the players or like Tom Hanks in the, the baseball movie, right, you know, how, how much worse is that player going to perform by having this coach, you know, yelling criticism at them versus the, the player whose coach is saying, wow, you know what? You missed that. That's okay. You know, I know you can do it. You did it in practice you know, just try again. We, you know, we love having you on the team, you know, that's so much more motivating. Um, and I think sometimes we worry that if I'm kind to myself, I'm just gonna like sit on the couch and eat chips or donuts all day. So it's actually not the case, right? That when we're kind to ourselves and we allow ourselves to do what like lights us up and we enjoy, we're actually so much more motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I could talk about kind self-talk forever, but you're right. It's very important. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, and I'm sorry, I love talking to you about this, um, but one of the really interesting things is that the study came out of U of Lethbridge a few years ago, and uh, they looked at aggressive play on the hockey arena, and they kind of measured mm-hmm. the level of aggression in the stands, and what they found is the more aggression mm-hmm. in the stands, these little kids were demonstrating aggression in, on the ice as well. And so, you know, I, I look at that, my boys are are older than than your kids, but that kind of always uh, t- you know, I, I ate that a little bit and and trying to educate my boys on it's okay to show emotions, it's okay to cry. Mm-hmm. And again, being very aware of where I am and how other mm-hmm. people can almost feel and transfer my energy into them, my emotions.
2: Mm-hmm. So
0: I guess my question is. Raising kids, what would you recommend as kind of a parental tip in teaching kids to be okay with who they are? And hmm. I don't want say, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'll just keep saying managing emotions because I'm struggling with the words. Yeah, here.
2: I think that's a fine word. It was the control that I, I said. I don't know what, what that means, yeah, but yeah. managing is, yeah, it's more like it's, it's like that organizing, organizing kind of as opposed to yeah. co- controlling yeah, I mean, I think we can say say things, say things to our kids that we say to ourselves, right? Yeah, it's okay to feel angry. I mean, I say this to my kids all the time, especially my two little ones. My younger boys are only eighteen months apart. Um, the one is seven and one is five and a half. So they're like best friends and then their worst enemies, like in a you know snap of the finger, right? And so we quite often say, you know what? It's okay to be upset because you know what? yeah, like he knocked over your tower or whatever. It makes sense that you're upset, and it's not okay to hit him. Right. So I think separating the emotion from the behavior um, and then saying, yeah, it's totally okay to feel upset. Um, One of my life coaching colleagues who works a bit more with parents, she talks about like this idea of saying, let's get really good at feeling angry. And then even talking to kids in their own language of like, what does it feel like to feel this way in your body And, and helping them to make contact with that? And I think also noticing our temptation sometimes to inadvertently invalidate our kids say, oh, you shouldn't be upset about that. That's no big deal. Right. And I think it's so easy to say that because if we could, again, just like make them not upset by saying they shouldn't be upset, that would be lovely. But because our child is upset about something, it is a big deal to them. Right. So by saying, oh, it's no big deal, just invalidates their experience. So I think always just pausing for that moment of like compassion and understanding to say, yeah, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Yeah, I can understand that. You know, you were playing a video game. You love that video game. And I told you it's supper time and you have to stop. Yeah makes sense. I would be upset too, if I was doing something fun and I was told to do something that was not so fun. And at the same time, we're still going to go have supper. Right. Um, and it's not okay to, you know, I don't know, yell at me or whatever that might be. Right. So that's separating out the emotional experience is completely valid. Yeah, I get it. You feel this way. And then sort of teaching them how to process that a little bit.
0: Thanks. I mean, I go ahead, Dave. Sorry.
1: Yeah. If someone's listening to this podcast and they're, um, they're in the point where they want to talk to a professional what are or what's the avenue that they should go down to know which kind of professional they should be talking to um hmm. i mean different ones like um like a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist like who do sure. they talk to about what and how would they go about getting there do you, how would you help those people who are looking
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, in terms of psychotherapy versus psychiatry, I think that's a very common Confusion. Um, And so a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who can diagnose and prescribe medication for psychiatric problems. Unfortunately, in Ontario, right now, there's a very long wait to see a psychiatrist, like almost a year. Uh, And some psychiatrists do provide some psychotherapy, but they mainly provide an assessment, which is really useful for a lot of people to to really get understand what their diagnosis might be, which of course can then inform what type of treatment will be helpful. Um, But they don't necessarily provide, you know, longitudinal care or like talk therapy. And then when it comes to psychotherapy, which can be provided by a lot of different people, um, social workers, uh, masters of social workers can, there's a designation called RP, which is a registered psychotherapist. Um, And of course there's PhD psychologists who can also provide psychotherapy. And then there's people like me who are family medicine trained, who can provide psychotherapy. Um, and then with within psychotherapy, there's a whole variety of different philosophies. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what I'm trained in. Um, now I'm biased. I would say it's the most evidence-based type of psychotherapy because it's very present and future focused and very action oriented. Um, but there's other types of psychotherapy that some other people benefit from, um, like psychodynamic therapy, which more talks about your childhood or the past. Um, there's um other things like EMDR, which is um, another type of therapy, which is for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So it really, I think depends on what their concern is. I think also there's some logistical issues, like what's available in your area. Do you have insurance? Right. Um, Right. That sort of thing. And that's, again, I find that Um, as physicians being able to provide psychotherapy, the real benefit is that um, people just have to have OHIP um, and it's much more accessible that way. Um, Because sometimes even if you have private coverage, you know, it only covers so many sessions. Um, And even though um, another aspect of cognitive behavioral therapy is that it's short term, like we generally see people for eight to 12 sessions, the philosophy is that we sort of train the patient to be their own therapist and they no longer need us. Um, But sometimes even eight to 12 sessions, if you're paying for them, it really adds up. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question.
1: And is this, would they approach a psychotherapist or is this something that they would do through their family doctor? Like what's, how, how do they get to yeah. the destination?
2: Yeah, no. And definitely I think as a family doctor myself, I would say it's, it's a great idea to just start with your family doctor, because sometimes we can also have emotional symptoms that are actually, um, part of a physical problem, right? So for example, an underactive thyroid would be a really common example or a low iron, So someone might think, oh, I'm tired all the time. You know, I have such low energy. I'm feeling kind of down, I must be depressed. Um, But it's really helpful to talk to your family doctor about it um, and perhaps have some blood work done if that's useful, because maybe if you have an underactive thyroid or very low iron, then that might be actually the best thing to do um, for your well-being, um, because those symptoms you're experiencing may not be entirely emotional. And then I think it can be helpful. Then your family doctor can can help to decide um, with you, you know, what might be the best avenue in terms of some support. Um, The other thing I would say is that as a life coach, I would say what we use, we use a lot of the same tools in cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's meant for people who are functioning well, who don't have a um, psychological diagnosis. So in psychotherapy, we would see people with depression or anxiety, whether that be Generalized anxiety, or um, social anxiety, or other things. Um, whereas, um, again, my life coaching clients maybe have burnout or some milder symptoms. Um, but the the line there is sort of there's they're not crossing that threshold of it affecting their life in a way um, that it would be a psych- psychiatric diagnosis. But life coaching can be a great thing for people as well.
0: I'm just, I'm going to ask a question.
2: I feel like it's kind
0: of a dumb question but uh you mentioned a lot of things there and as just an average person how Mm. do I know who to go see um do Mm. I do I wait a year for a psychiatrist like I'm 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 confused like kind of how do I know I should go I should go see somebody and who should like do should
2: I start with my family physician first yeah I think that's a good idea yeah Yeah, starting with your family doctor. And then um, again, just to see, you know, again, if there could be some, you know, physical component to the emotional symptoms. And then I think sometimes, you know, even word of mouth, you know, if you have a friend who saw a certain therapist that was really well recommended, um, that they really enjoyed, sometimes also just talking to a couple of people. And again, whether that be a life coach, if that's more the thing you're looking for, or a psychotherapist, and having just like an introductory session. And I would say m- most all therapists and life coaches should be very happy with doing one session and there's no obligation to kind of keep seeing them. I mean, even when we're billing OHIP, you know, we we just we always tell people that, you know, it's if it's not a good fit, it's not a good fit because sometimes the philosophy of therapy resonates with you, but maybe just the personality of the therapist isn't what you were looking for. Um, and so I think that little bit of, I don't want to call it shopping around, but sort of <laughs> can be reasonable, right? To say, oh yeah, like, you know, this person, I can really see working with them. I, I can see we have like a really good um, bond. and And perhaps if someone else doesn't resonate, does that help Jackie? Yeah, no, no and
0: that's kind of yeah. going into my, my last question here is because I'm thinking as a listener, um, navigating a field which you have no idea. You're just not feeling a certain way, like maybe, you yeah. know, you're, you're feeling angry all the time or something. Um, who do I go see? And and so now I'm going to kind of touch base mm-hmm. with you. How uh, if someone is experiencing emotional stress, because you seem to offer a couple of things, life coaching and psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. how do I contact you? And how do I know which Jill I should speak to?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Like which hat am I wearing? So I would say, I mean, I really only do a a very small amount of, of life coaching. So I'd say, in general, 90% of me is in the psychotherapy world. Um, and so the company that I work with is TeleCBT. So that's T-E-L-E-C-B-T cbtca And people can just self-refer. They have to live in the province of Ontario, um, but they can just go to the website and fill out an intake form to speak with one of the intake workers. And our intake workers are, are um, very well-trained as well, and they can help people to navigate you know, is this the type of therapy that you're looking for? Or maybe if something else is, is better. Um, and then again, if they um, would want to see someone um, as a physician who's covered by OHIP, then they would just be put on the wait list. I don't think our wait list is super long right now. It's sometimes been upwards of three months, not as long as a psychiatrist, but, but again, um, psychiatrists playing a very different role than, than, than psychotherapists. Um, yeah. And then I also work um, doing, again, just a little bit of life coaching. I have an Instagram account, which is Jill Bailey MD life coach. And I have a a website, which isn't very active in terms of updating it recently, but it's jillbaileymdlifecoaching.ca. And I work with a company um, called Anti-Fragile Female MD as an assistant coach. So that's where I do most of my life coaching right now is with my my friend who does um, the life coaching program for female physicians who are recovering from burnout. Um, Yeah. And you do mainly virtual appointments now. That's right. It's all virtual right now. Yeah. So,
0: and I'm always optimistic. When this pandemic ends, yeah, will it still continue to be virtual, or is there an opportunity to do a face to face?
2: Yeah. No, I, I'm really looking forward to um, even just partnering with some local organizations. I've been speaking with both, like the different area family health team and the community mental health association, to run some of the mindfulness groups with them in person. You know, a few months ago, we were thinking maybe you know April or May might work, and it's hard to know if that's going to be the case. Um, and I think at some point I will have an in-person office in Orangeville, uh, but it's just a matter of you know waiting to see what happens with the pandemic. I'll probably still always do a little bit of virtual care. Uh, I think it really makes it so accessible for people. I've seen some patients who are wheelchair bound. Or you know you know just can't get places they live in a remote area and it's just I think um, such a gift for them to be able to just turn on their phone or their laptop and access um, therapy so I think I'll probably still do some virtual care um, for the long term um, but yeah seeing people in person you know you can't beat that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Jill, I can't thank you enough. You really have, and, and I, and I would love to, to continue the conversation with you. I can't thank you enough. Just Dave, I don't know if you have any other
3: questions for Jill before uh, we sign off.
1: I'm absorbing right now.
3: Yeah, yeah. same. Yeah, There's if just I, been so much information. And it has been a yeah. pleasure having you on here. Um, but yes, sorry, you sure. were going to say
2: something. Oh, I was just going to say, if, if anyone's looking for other resources, I know I mentioned like Kelly McGonigal's books, which are really good, again, like The Upside of Stress and The Joy of Movement. Um, the other one that I think is a really great book, if you're just looking for one book to read about, you know, managing emotions and moving towards what's important in your life, um, as opposed to spending your energy controlling your emotions, it would be The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there if people want to do some deeper diving into these concepts.
0: Uh, we will get them from you and then we'll put them in uh, the links as well as plus the uh, uh, websites that you mentioned as well. Um, mm-hmm. I truly can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day um, and away from your family as well to share your insight with us. Um, it's been a uh, uh, it's it, there's as Dave said, I have a lot to digest as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah thank you
2: thank you once again well thanks so much for having me yeah it was great to be here thank
3: you for watching and listening to this week's episode of the food and fitness podcast join us next week when the hosts of the food and fitness podcast sit down to reflect in our team huddle episode